0: Hello, I'm Kate Chabot, and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyze the key defense and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week, questions over the government's integrated defense review due to be published next month. As Royal Marine Commandos use drones on exercise in Cyprus, we ask how technology might change conflict.
1: Well, I think the technology will be welcomed. I think the British Armed Forces are very open to technical, technological uh, development and advancement. But I think also there's a recognition that technology on its own is not and never will be a, a war-winning capability. You need to use it well, you need to understand it, and you need to have really well-trained people to, to do that.
0: And what role did GCHQ play in the Falklands War? We hear from the author of its first official history.
2: Well, the key things are that quite literally the the very first moment that the Argentines begin to do anything unusual, GCHQ mobilizes immediately for a full-scale war.
0: But first, there was confusion yesterday over the government's integrated review of foreign development, security and defense policy, which is due to be published next month. Laura Macon-Isherwood has been following this story. Uh, Laura, good to speak to you. First, reminders of the idea behind the review. Well the integrated
3: review was launched by the Prime Minister at the end of last year with the aim of redefining the UK's place in the world. Its focus is on foreign policy, security and defence and was set to tie in with a cross-government spending review with budgets set three years in advance in order to make sure decisions could be made with the right funding to match. For the MOD, Service Chiefs and the Defence Secretary have been working for months on plans that many said would be transformative, bringing the three services closer together with the development of a digital backbone.
0: And as As we speak, and obviously there may be further developments, what has happened to that plan?
3: Well, it seems the Treasury has thrown a spanner in the works. Given the impact that the coronavirus crisis has had on the economy, the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, has announced he's abandoning his long-term spending plan and will now only set out money one year ahead. A cross-government statement said simply that in the light of this, it's now considering the implications for the completion of the integrated review and will provide an update in due course. But that appears to leave any plans the MOD might have for changes beyond 12 months up in the air. The Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, made a speech to international allies on HMS Queen Elizabeth a few hours after the news broke, but avoided referring to the move directly.
4: The world does not stop for our reviews. Our adversaries will not halt the absence of our strategies, and the UK's defence can never be paused in the face of financial uncertainty. We should be signalling to the world that Britain is self-confident, proactive, problem-solving and burden-sharing.
3: Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy told me he believes the decision pulls the rug out from beneath the feet of everyone at the MOD.
5: Everybody connected with the Defence and Security Review, the Integrated Reviews, had their ground cut from under them today. You simply can't have a plan for defence, a plan for the security of the country, if you haven't got the budget to back it. And without that, it leaves everyone in limbo. And most importantly, it leaves the frontline troops, not knowing whether they've got the backup from government,
3: Well, the confusion just keeps coming because while the Cabinet Office wouldn't confirm what would happen next, chair of the Defence Select Committee Tobias Elwood tweeted that he'd spoken to the Prime Minister directly about it. He wrote grateful for one to one with PM where he confirmed there will be no delay in publishing the review. There's still no official public confirmation of that. And many will ask whether without a long term funding settlement, there's much point.
0: Laura macon with thank you for that. Well, joining me now is Professor Michael Clark, the former director of the defence think tank RUSI, and our defence analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Michael Clark, as the statement says, we are waiting for an update. What's going on? Do you think?
6: Yes, it's uh, what one minister yesterday described as a handbrake turn, because all of all departments in Whitehall had submitted um, their plans, their long-term plans, to the Treasury on the twenty-fourth of September. The MOD felt that it had a really good line with Dining Street and that Number 10 agreed with its ideas, its transformational ideas. Whether it would back its its financial requirements was a different issue, but Number 10 was thoroughly on board. There was a cabinet meeting on Tuesday morning at which nothing was said about this change to the strategy. And then by Tuesday night, late Tuesday night, the Treasury was, was briefing that the Comprehensive Spending Review was off. So something happened during Tuesday. Obviously, this has been a, a, a discussion that's gone on between Downing Street and the Treasury, but it reached a peak separate to whatever the Cabinet was talking about on Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday evening, and you know I know for a fact, as Laura does, that yesterday the MOD was scrambling like crazy to try to work out where it left them. They, they, they issued a statement, first of all, saying, uh, we're, we're reconsidering announcement in due course. Then there was uh, Tobias Elwood's uh, idea that, well, the Prime Minister said it would go ahead. Nobody's clear if it will. And so we, the guess is, and it is only a guess at the moment, that there will be some sort of interim review statement sometime during November, but it won't have any numbers attached to it. It won't, it won't make any financial assumptions, and therefore, in my view, it will just be a sort of a, a, shop, a, a, a shop window. Uh, it'll be a sort of window shopping exercise of all the things we'd like to have when we know how much money we've got.
0: So, basically, a statement of intent without the three-year spending commitments.
6: Well, it, it would seem so, because it, it's impossible to make a, a proper statement unless you know whether you're going to have more money to spend, the same amount of money, or more likely, quite deep cuts in expenditure. Um, and you, you simply can't plan for some of these very expensive technologies the MODs wants to adopt to, to be transformative. I mean, transformation is not cheap. And so they, they, they can't make any sensible decisions until they know what their three- to five-year outlook is going to be.
0: So Christopher, what do you think we're actually likely to see then around the end of next month? Will we still get the ambition and strategy laid out in, in the review?
6: Not well, unless the
5: cha- Chancellor says so, and he say, at the moment he's saying, I'm not sure how much money there's going to be. And that's not unreasonable considering the sort of pickle all ministries have been in and the Chancellor has been in for the past sort of six to nine months. I think that's going to be the short answer to everything. And the most important thing about this integrated review It is try to get government to give the defence ministry an outline of what they want to be able to do during the next five, ten years. Mm -hmm. And unless they can, given the ministry of that outline, the Ministry of Defence cannot say, well, OK, and so these are the weapons we use to guarantee what your policy is.
0: But do you think the defence chiefs will press ahead with the reforms they've been planning?
5: They can't press ahead unless they've got some guarantee that in basic form at least they'll be paid for.
0: Michael Clark, so much uncertainty about the economy due to COVID-19. The government has two locks on defence spending, 2% of GDP and a commitment to increase spending by at least 0.5% above inflation.
6: Yes, uh, the, the 2% of GDP is meaningless for the time being because GDP is all over the place. I mean, our GDP mm. is going to be about 15% lower at the end of this process. So that doesn't mean anything. The, the 0.5% increase... Uh, in cash terms is real but it's a drop in the ocean compared to what we're really speaking about and i think you know as christopher says the the, the defense chiefs are, are, i know are deeply exasperated by this they understand the problem you know we're all in the middle of a, a covid emergency which is having big economic uh, impacts on our economy but f- they are the they are part of the department the ministry of defense that is probably the most affected by this decision to suspend the Comprehensive spending review. And they're in a position where they're just marking time now. There's not much they can Mm. do until they get some sort of financial assumptions that they can work on for the next three to five
0: years. Gentlemen, stay with us. Well, the COVID pandemic will top the agenda when defence ministers from the 30 NATO member countries begin two days of meetings today. There will be familiar topics too, like alliance defence spending and the response to Russia's missile capabilities. Worsening security in Afghanistan and Iraq will also be a focus. But for the first time, Defence Ministers will consider opening a NATO Space Centre at Ramstein in Germany. NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg.
4: This will be a focal point uh, to support NATO missions uh, with communications and satellite imagery, share information about potential threats to satellites, and coordinate our activities in this uh, crucial domain. Our aim is not to militarise space but to increase NATO's awareness of challenges in space and our ability to deal with them.
0: Christopher, are the use of space is a growing issue for NATO. It is. I mean, it, it is not
5: a new issue. Go back to the 1950s, especially when um, the, the Americans saw uh, the Russians get into space properly in a, in, a, in a military form, i.e. with a long-range missile, uh, and which you could put, you could put a satellite um, that's when the American President Eisenhower said, "We are. We have now entered the era of of intercontinental ballistic missiles, and therefore mm-hmm. it is an international it is an international trade uh, for the first real time." Um, what we're seeing now is all the the integrated technology coming together, and where you can buy it easily or relatively easily, where countries who don't want somebody else to have it have difficulties putting up the technology ban about it so they're being sold to somebody else. And so I think that we're actually on one of those verges of a new knowledge of how you can use space, whether it's being able to use high-speed missiles in near-Earth, uh, uh, near-Earth targets like some some satellites. But you can do it now, and you can go somewhere and get the gear to do it, and know that you've got that for some time.
0: Mm, Michael Clark, on the, on the subject of defence spending, uh, only 10 of the 30 NATO countries met its 2% defence spending this year. Presumably, Covid may reduce the contributions in future.
6: Yes. Uh, I mean, I think it's hard to imagine that NATO will have the same amount of cash to spend uh, in the future as it has had in the past, because everyone is suffering. Uh, and I think NATO's task will be, in a sense, to... to Not to ditch the two percent target because that's still meaning it still has political meaning, but to replace it with something that will keep everybody's eyes on the amount of cash that NATO NATO's can really spend. But there's a whole series of big questions that NATO expenditure has got to face in the next 12 months. And Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General, is doing his best to keep NATO's momentum going, with uh, like with uh, uh, announcements about the space centre in Ramstein, to indicate that NATO is not just standing still, that it de- still does have a, a very important job to perform, and that's what he's working on.
0: And on the subject of Afghanistan, which is obviously being discussed, Michael, the Taliban are advancing despite their peace deal with the United States earlier in the year, and peace talks have stalled.
6: Yes, and it's very... Inevitable in a way, but very sad to see the Taliban in Lashkagar. I mean, you know, a few years ago, Lashkagar was one of the safe areas in Helmand. You know, when you went to Lash, if you're in Lashkagar, as you will probably remember, Kate, the, it was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, and now here it is. It's, a, it's becoming a, it's under siege. Now it will probably become a Taliban stronghold because the um, national uh, Afghan national forces can't really hold it. Uh, and what we're seeing is the withdrawal of the United States commitment to Afghanistan um, and the Taliban know that they can just play a waiting game. So unfortunately, we're now heading for what will become clear strategic failure in Afghanistan um, after you know 20 years of campaigning. Um, There's not much we can do to prevent what seems to be the inevitable. And even the Afghan um, security minister seems to, he he really is saying, well, we're working to mitigate the effects. Not we're working for victory or we're working for a, a political settlement. We're working to mitigate the effects of Taliban dominance. So it's very, very bleak news for Afghanistan, I'm afraid.
5: What we've got at the moment is that the difficulty of being able to put any new development into operational uh, use, uh, we've had, for example, end of last year, uh, Michael's ex-institute, the RUSI, did some work on uh, what sort of firepower, gunpower uh, we had in we had in Afghanistan, and they made it very clear that it was sad to see that um, that that the opposition had effectively Russian equipment that was better than ours. Um, And it's a lack of artillery firepower, it was called. And I don't think we've actually moved on from there. Hence the the idea of the uh, Taliban moving forces up right up into Lashagaf.
0: Gentlemen, stay with us. Now, Royal Marine Commandos are planning trials on exercise in Cyprus with drones of different sizes and capabilities. The MOD says robot systems will be used to provide commandos on the ground with supplies as well as intelligence of movements and activity. Remotely piloted aircraft or drones and unmanned vehicles play an increasing role in the military. Earlier in the week, the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace went to Salisbury Plain to watch a demonstration of some of the latest autonomous surveillance reconnaissance vehicles.
4: You know, embracing modern ISR, you know, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance, modern uh, use of digital communications and coordination. Not only because it makes our armed forces more productive, more lethal, but it's also because what our adversary is doing. The
0: British Army's only unmanned aerial systems regiment, 3-2 Regiment Royal Artillery, the Wessex Gunners, has been trialling new ways of working. Recently, the Wessex Gunners took part in Exercise Wessex Seahawk. Lieutenant Colonel Charlie Harmer is their commanding officer.
4: We're down on Exercise Wessex Seahawk. Um, A real privilege for me as a Cornishman to bring my regiment on exercise to Cornwall but actually conducting a technical flying camp of ARPAs, Remotely Piloted Air Systems, um, that you've seen through the day, um, and also developing that um, in a more tactical posture and forging links of the information we collect from the aircraft back to our emulated brigade headquarters back in Lark Hill.
0: In the future, the regiment is due to add Aquila, a new remotely piloted aircraft system, to its repertoire. Lieutenant Colonel Harbour again.
4: This technology, for us, is critical. Um, anything that can prevent us putting humans in the way um, or in harm's way rather um, has got to be worth the investment and if we can be as integrated um, and as inclusive as we are now working across other parts of the army and even with the royal navy the royal air force Watchkeeper being another capability in the army if we can work in this unmanned space um, or wrong remotely piloted space developing the intelligence picture without putting our soldiers our sailors our airmen in harm's way then it surely does make perfect sense to do so and to push it as far as we can push it reasonably.
0: Well, earlier I spoke to Professor Peter Lee from the University of Portsmouth who researches drones and advanced weapons systems and asked him whether the UK was in a race for technological advantage on the battlefield, as the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace has said.
1: He is, and it's not just um, obvious potential enemies such as China, but there are enemies in non-state groups who are developing technological capabilities as well.
0: On Salisbury Plain, the Army demonstrated a new Android team awareness kit that links to drones and autonomous vehicles fitted with cameras, enabling troops to watch a live stream of threats miles away. This surely will lead to better protection for forces on the ground.
1: Well, it certainly will lead to better situational awareness, They'll be able to see the environment, perhaps approaching threats, or if they're in, a, in an attack uh, p- position and looking to advance on an enemy, it will give them a greater immersive understanding of the risks and where the opportunities are. So I think, yes, it's going to be a really important bit of equipment that comes their way.
0: Mm. And how do you think the military will strike the balance in future in its use of unmanned vehicles for surveillance or, or actual combat?
1: Well, I think we can look back over... 14 years now and more that the the Royal Air Force, for example, has been using the Reaper. Uh, And not only that, before that time, some Royal Air Force personnel were working with the Americans on predators. So there's years of using remotely piloted aircraft, primarily for surveillance, the intelligence reconnaissance surveillance mode. And that has really built the expertise in the UK and in other countries. And that expertise is, is spreading to other places like the army just now. And part of that, is because army personnel have been involved with the reaper and its development so i think the technology will be welcomed i think the british armed forces are very open to technical technological uh, development and advancement but i think also there's a recognition that technology on its own is not and never will be a a war-winning capability you need to use it well you need to understand it and you need to have really well-trained people to to do that
0: Ben Wallace said on Salisbury Plain that he did not want to replace humans, but rather to support and supplement them. Currently, military drones are controlled by people, aren't they? So there is always a human judgment.
1: Yes, humans are involved at, at every stage at the moment, but there is potential even avoiding a fully autonomous weapon, there is potential to introduce what you might call autonomous elements in a system. So, for example, sticking with the Reaper or any of the army unmanned aerial vehicles, you could have them take off and land uh, automatically or autonomously without a human having to actively control it. When it comes to analysing the imagery Whilst whilst so much imagery is produced, video, pictures, it takes a huge amount of time to analyse. And as AI develops, that could be used in the analytical process as well. And there are many other ways in which technology can be used to enhance what people are already doing, but not simply replace people.
0: Mm, And and the Royal Marines are using drones, as I said earlier, on exercise in, in Cyprus. What's the potential there for them?
1: Well, I think... The the Reaper, the large remotely piloted aircraft, have been used in, in big operations like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria. Americans use them elsewhere. And they have been used at, a, at a, a kind of high level, um, whereas the Marines have the option of using much smaller capabilities, much smaller uh, remote, remotely controlled aircraft, to give them a, a tactical, very short distance, immediate understanding of the surroundings. So you don't need to have something flying at 20,000 feet. You could have something flying at 20 or 200 feet or 2,000 feet. Whatever will help them get that tactical picture and give them an advantage and reduce the risk to themselves.
0: And where are we in terms of international agreement or not about the use of lethal unmanned aerial or other vehicles?
1: Well, when it comes to remotely piloted aircraft, they're, they're not controversial um, legally controversial, as long as they are still used within uh, international law, within rules of engagement, uh, within national guidelines. Where the controversy is, is and has been for some years in the international system is around autonomous weapons. So imagine a, a drone, a, a Reaper-style aircraft that flew on its own, that could make its own decisions to, to deploy a weapon and kill a human being. That is something UK government said that it will not pursue, but other governments have said they will and may well be doing. And as things stand at the United Nations discussions in Geneva, there is as yet no agreement on any limitations to these uh, aerial vehicles or land or maritime vehicles. And candidly, I don't think there is going to be uh, an agreement. I think the most powerful states are looking to have that advantage and confirm that advantage and stop opponents from, from joining them with that capability. So I don't think it looks very positive in terms of international limitations on fully or, or weapons approach fully autonomous in the immediate years ahead.
0: And what do you think will be the future use of unmanned aerial vehicles or drones and autonomous vehicles in the British military?
1: Well, they can be used in in any and every domain. So land, sea or air. I've spoken a lot about the air, but in the land domain, uh, there are there are capabilities. You could have tanks or tank equivalents without human beings actively in them. You could have them not only remotely operated or driven, but with artificial intelligence have the capability to make decisions on what terrain to follow, how to track um, incoming threats, incoming targets. In a maritime environment, uh, you could deploy underwater, uh, underwater autonomous vehicles that are already designed and, and being tested, uh, underwater vehicles to to look for incoming threats either to say uh, a carrier fleet or to uh, dockyards at the shore. So there, there's just the the only limitation is is the imagination and the budget to pay for it all.
0: Professor Peter Lee, there, uh, Christopher. Professor Lee talking about the budget, and this comes back to the whole question of budgets and priorities.
5: Well, it does, um, but it's not in extremes. I mean, he made a, made a point saying, "Don't get the idea they're looking for, a, uh, say, a helicopter that can carry missiles and that will fly at a thousand thousand knots."
2: Uh,
0: Michael Clark, how do you think the UK compares to potential hostile actors in terms of capabilities in the field?
6: Well, it's got a real problem, because at the moment everybody is looking at Nagorno-Karabakh because Turkey has given a lot of drones, it's uh, Bayraktar the TB2 drone to the Azeris, to Azerbaijan, and they're making a decisive difference in the struggle in Nagorno-Karabakh. They're using those drones along with an Israeli drone called the uh, the Harup, Um and the, Harup, the Israeli drone is acting in a suppression of enemy air defense role, and the uh, Bayraktar are acting as strike drones and they are decisive we're seeing in Nagorno-Karabakh we've seen it a little bit in Syria and in Libya with Turkish drones but here in Nagorno-Karabakh in this particular little flare-up we are seeing the use of multiple drones make a decisive difference where you've got quality and quantity together and to be honest I mean if I was a ground force commander in the British army I'd be very worried about that because unless we can develop our own, force, our own drone force pretty quickly and counter drone capabilities we could lose one of our strike brigades in, in an afternoon to these things.
0: So it's making a big difference in the, in the conflict there between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan. Yep.
6: Yeah, absolutely. It's deci- it looks as if it's going to be decisive. Uh, and anyone who's interested in what's happening to drones, look at Nagorno-Karabakh, because that's mm-hmm. where the future lies.
0: Michael, thank you very much for your time today, Michael Clark, Christopher, stay with us. Now, a new book detailing the official history of GCHQ argues that, without its work, the Falklands War in 1982 may not have been won. It also says that Bletchley Park's code-breaking played an important role but didn't shorten the Second World War by as much as some have claimed. Its author, Professor John Ferris of Calgary University, told us that historically British Signals Intelligence, or SIGINT, has been strong.
2: I'd say that historically, it is tied with the Americans since 1914. It played an important role in Britain winning the Second World War. It didn't save Britain in the sense that what saved Britain was the fact it was a very powerful state with good leadership. But it helped that leadership use its strength quite wisely and effectively. In the Falklands conflict, I think it's unavoidable to say the GCHQ was necessary to victory.
0: Now, you chart the history of GCHQ in your book, and secrecy was part of its DNA, sometimes at a great personal cost. You tell the story of a British Army officer, Malcolm Kennedy. What happened to him?
2: Well, Malcolm Kennedy was a leading world specialist on the Japanese Army, which is why he joins the predecessor of GCHQ in 1935. And he works in the Japanese military section for the next decade. His son, I mean, the family nickname is Mungo, becomes a lieutenant in the Royal Navy in a submarine. And in February 1945, the submarines operating in the Java Sea suddenly goes silent. And so Malcolm Kennedy uses his connections to be able to see Japanese naval communications and realizes that his son's submarine has been silent. But the tragedy is that Kennedy cannot tell his wife. He goes home every night and he and his wife talk about what has happened to their son. But he can't tell her that he knows almost for certain that their son is dead. So it's a real a terrible thing from mm-hmm. his own point of view.
0: Your unprecedented access has revealed its influence in the end of the Cold War. What role did it play
2: then? Well, what essentially GCHQ and the American National Security Agency do is find a way to monitor on a live basis the actions of all Soviet forces every day of the week. They live within the communication networks of the other side. You have intercept operators who have spent their lifetime monitoring the communications within a specific Soviet armored corps, for example. And what this means is that you know the normal standard operating procedures and you know when things are changing. And this provides a high degree of certainty that World War Three is not going to break out today or tomorrow. So, in other words, what it does is simplify the task for Western decision makers.
0: You mentioned earlier the key role that GCHQ had during the Falklands War. What exactly did it do?
2: Well, the key things are that quite literally the, the very first moment that the Argentines begin to do anything unusual, GCHQ mobilizes immediately for a full-scale war. So in other words, two weeks before the Argentines invade, GCHQ is putting itself on a war footing. It is able to monitor Argentine naval communications with great power. And the Argentines, for unknown reasons, feel the need to discuss their naval operational plans by radio, which means the British are intercepting it and getting it out to the task force commander almost at the same time the Argentine uh, admirals or naval captains are receiving it. So they have a very clear picture of what the Argentines are doing.
0: And how critical has Five Eyes security been between Australia, Britain, Canada, New Zealand and the United States over
2: time? It is one of the secret and unknown bullards of international security since 1945, it really goes back to 1942. There's really never a break in the continuity of the SIGINT relationship between these powers. Essentially what it means is that we members of the Five Eyes can pool our resources. We don't have to treat each other as a threat. We can do things to help each other. We can parcel out work. It also means that we are the single biggest SIGINT power in the world.
0: Uh, Christopher Lee, bring us up to date, one of the biggest changes has been the setting up of the National Cybersecurity Center.
5: It has, um, and it was a natural progression. It wasn't a revolution. Uh, the MOD um, was in without any hesitation uh, that it had to get into the cybersecurity interlude, as, 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 as one naval commander put it, so we've got to get into this interlude because what follows from it is going to be a much larger force. I think the MOD has put far more money in than people imagined. It's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty common thing to say, well, the MOD really hasn't taken its chances on this. But it certainly has. So I think we're, we're in a revolutionary stage, which is not dramatic. But certainly in 10 years' time, hmm. um, should I survive, you and I will be talking about this in a totally different
0: way. Christopher, thank you very much. That's it from me, Kate Chabot, and from Christopher Lee. Thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at Rep. And while you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode at BFBS.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.